I read Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And I just want to expound one verse from Psalm 85. I'll tell you which one. It's verse 6. But I'll read the whole of the psalm as we... Uh, as we sung it this morning. Psalm 85. Focus being verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? But the whole of the psalm is this. To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore, O God, of our salvation. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak for the Lord, uh, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text and your word. And we ask, Holy Father, that, well, we ask you along with them that you might Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you and teach us the true contents of what it is not only to say this, but to pray this and to believe and to look for it. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, in one sense, I'm breaking from my morning series and in another sense, I'm not uh, because Uh, While I am preaching something entirely different, it is uh, very much related to what we've been considering. This is a sermon that I've wanted to preach for some time, uh, only I've been waiting for the right time to say it. I'm calling it my revival sermon. The relevance uh, to each of the two sermon series, I think, should be obvious, but if not, let me tell you. Given what has been said in Romans chapter 11 and throughout Acts in one Romans 11 revival is predicted. I mentioned it many times in the other. It happens. What's happening in Acts? Well, revival. And yet I fear in speaking of revival, as I've been doing in both series, I have not uh, been entirely clear as to what I mean. And I realize that men mean many things when they speak of revival. I was just speaking to another minister and he said, well, you know, the trouble with revivalism. And I said, wait a second, I didn't say revivalism, I said revival. And so there are these uh, differences, uh, uh, not only of opinion, but of meaning. Men mean many things when they speak of revival. I've been speaking of it. Let me tell you what I mean. Before I do that, in speaking of the relevance of this idea, I, I have to say this. 
that many in the OPC are not very favorable to this idea of revival. They're against it. They're opponents of revival. You have an insert uh, in the bulletin by J.W. Alexander of, of Revival. He asks, number two, do you rejoice in revival? But number one is, are you an enemy of revival? Do you shudder at the thought? Well, uh, if I were to be honest, I would say that there are many in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and many in Reformed Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterianism at large who shudder at the thought. They're, they're opponents of the idea of revival. And this goes all the way back to the first great awakening. And you can tell a lot about a man uh, in his opinion or by his opinion about the first great awakening. You ask uh, a minister or a fellow Christian, you know, what do you think of Edwards? Recently, I had that conversation with a fellow minister and I said, you know, Edwards is one of my favorite. He said, really, I'm not a fan of Edwards. And uh, these are the kinds of disagreements we ministers have and we Christians have. But it really boils down to what do you make of the first great awakening? And it was during the first great awakening in this country, that's uh, pre-revolution in colonial America, that two camps were formed. There was the old side and the new side. Now, the new side preachers were the revival preachers, men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, the two most prominent fi- uh, figures. But there were men on the other side, the old side, who felt that the whole thing was wrong, that it was excessive, and who were in general critical of these men. Again, that was the old side. Now, uh, one of the things that um, Dalimore, this was a book I read early on in the ministry, George Whitfield, this is just the first volume, Andrew Dalimore, George Whitfield, as he traces Whitfield through the first great awakening, one of the things that he points out, and I think this is helpful to see, is that there was also a third camp of moderates, who stood in between the new side and the old side. And I suppose if you pressed me and said, Pastor, which side are you on? I would say, uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, I, a moderate. But my sympathies, <laughs> I guess you're not used to hearing me use that word to describe myself. But at any rate, my sympathies, along with the moderates, are with the new side. Although I, I, I'm, I'm open and interested uh, to many of the criticisms of the old side, uh, I, I have a lot of books. This is an unusual sermon, but that's all right. Uh, Fighting the Good Fight. This traces the history of the OPC. And in just one page, uh, they make it clear that the theological heritage, this is, George, uh, this is John Meether and Daryl Hart, they make it clear the theological heritage of the OPC comes out of the old side <laughs> uh, in their estimation. Now, I don't agree with that. But uh, that just shows you what I'm up against uh, in, in the broader Reformed world right now. Because what I have found, uh, trained as I was at Westminster in a decidedly old-sided strain, is that the longer I'm in the ministry, the more my sympathies belong with the new-sided men. The more I read the Puritans, the more I read the Banner of Truth, that's where I find myself. That's where my heart is. And yet many in my denomination and many in the Reformed world are critical of these men. And I find myself in a situation in which the old side prevails. I will grant that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is by and large old side. And yet, as I meet more and more new ministers that the Lord is raising up, I would say, I think, I don't know, but I think happily the tide may be turning. One of the reasons, I believe, is someone who used to be old side has become a new sider, or at least is leaning in that way as a moderate, 
One of the reasons revival is so frowned upon is because it's misunderstood. That's my analysis, and it's my own experience. My experience is once I began to understand it, the most helpful book uh, our, our prior pastor in this church ever gave me was Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. Such a helpful book. It completely transformed my outlook on the subject. Uh, and from there, I, I went on to read uh, the account of, uh, of the revivals. But I had misunderstood it, and I realized, I think, that many misunderstand it. Even this conversation I was referring to with this minister, he said, the problem with revivalism. I said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about revival, and you see there's two, two things we're referring to here, revival and revivalism. Let's be clear what we're referring to. We are critical of revivalism. We ought not to be critical of revival. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, give me a moment and I'll tell you. But if we are to give the idea a chance, I think you will find that you are more favorable to the idea perhaps than you thought. And so this is a subject which I would say has, been, uh, has become very dear to my heart. And it's very dear to the heart of the men that I'm reading throughout the week uh, uh, year after year after year. And that is, as it has become very dear to my heart, I would have it to, to be dear to your heart as well, as with other ministers I speak to very often. One of the things that I'm seeking to do is to turn the tide in favor of the new side. Let me deal, first of all, with three common misunderstandings that prejudice people against the idea of revival. And then I will deal with revival in its true biblical form. The first is that revival and revivalism are equated. And when that happens, I would agree. Revival is something that is bad, and I am opposed to it. If by revival you mean revivalism. Now, let me tell you what revivalism is. Revivalism is interested in methods, in what man can do to produce the results. Think of Finney's anxious bench. Or think of the altar call when the, the lights grow dim and the piano starts to play and the pastor becomes especially earnest. That's man's, uh, man's attempt to achieve revival. The main idea of revivalism is that with enough careful effort, man can produce a revival. That's revivalism. Uh, one, once I remember in college attending uh, what was called a revival service in a little country Baptist church in eastern North Carolina. It was a called meeting. The church says, this is a revival. We're holding it. Again, that's revivalism. But true revival is nothing like that. It isn't something that man can produce. It isn't something man can predict. You can't hold a service and say, this is a revival. It is something that man has no say in. He longs for it. He prays for it like the sons of Korah. But revival comes only when God pours out his spirit on the church in a mighty way. And so the most essential feature of revival is that only God can produce it in his own timing and his own way. That is essential, uh, an essential distinction we must begin with. Uh, a second common misconception is that those who believe in revival, such as myself, uh, somehow or other believe that this is meant to be the norm. That, uh, that I am miserable unless I am experiencing revival. That the church should always be in a state of revival. Now, as long as I've been a Christian, I, I've, I've never known anyone except for one person who actually thought that. Now, this person actually believed that. But other than him, and he wasn't a minister, other than him, I've never met anyone who believed that.
If we were to compare revival, and this is, I think, a natural point of comparison to the Christian life, do we not realize that the Christian life is full of peaks and valleys? That sometimes the Lord brings us to the mountaintop, other times he drops us in the valley. Now, when we're on the mountaintop, we say, Lord, leave us here. We want to build a tent. We want to stay here like Peter. The Lord says, you can't stay here. And he brings you back to the valley, and there you are in the valley again. And you begin to pray that the Lord would bring you back to that mountaintop. And I'm saying that just as that happens in the Christian life, so that happens in the life of the church. She isn't always there. She doesn't stay there. She would build a tabernacle there, but the Lord doesn't let her. But there are seasons of blessing. There are seasons of refreshing in the Christian life, so there are in the church. Now, I want to interact with this idea then that those who believe in that are always bemoaning the fact that it isn't happening. No, I I just acknowledge it's something extraordinary. It's something exceptional. It's something that never lasts. So please hear me saying that. And I'm not bemoaning or despising uh, the ordinary in the day of small things. This, uh, in, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, The Puritans, in his history of revival, uh, I, I think he puts this as well as anyone ever has. Uh, he says, the church seems to be divided at the present into, into two camps. There's a group of people that always talk about revival and only about revival. They are only interested in the exceptional and unusual And they tend to despise the day of small things, the regular work of the church, and so on. The other group so emphasize the ordinary work of the church and of the spirit in the church that they distrust the whole notion of the unusual and exceptional. The answer, of course, is that both are wrong. Now, if I had more time, uh, I I have an entire page I would like to read you. But he he quotes, I realize already I have too many quotes to read you, and that will fill up all the time. But he quotes James Buchanan, who famously wrote... Uh, the, 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 the work on justification. But he also interacted with this idea that it is wrong, both camps are wrong. It is wrong to limit the Lord only to the ordinary and the usual. Equally, it is wrong only to look for the extraordinary and the unusual. We must see uh, and, and have a place in our theology for both and, and understand that the Lord is working in both days, the day of small things and in the seasons of blessing. Oh, that I could read you, James Buchanan. I can't. Uh, Ian Murray says the same thing. I, I think this one might be worth reading. It's a little shorter. He says, in so speaking of the Spirit's work in revival, these evangel- evangelical leaders were not disparaging the reality of his normal and regular work in the church. They were far from believing that Christianity can only spread in the manner that it did in 1740. They were simply affirming that there are times when the spirit is given in exceptional measure and that such times may come suddenly, even when deadness is general in the church and indifference to biblical religion prevails in society at large. All right. What about the third point, the third misconception, and that is that those who believe in revival think that uh, to, to hope and to pray for revival is to place too much hope in this world and in this life. I'm very concerned to address this, uh, as is Ian Murray in his book, The Puritan Hope. I've had some of you ask me in light of recent sermons whether I've become a post-mill. I have not. I remain an ah-mill, though I'm becoming more optimistic all the time as an ah-mill. 
But I have a very real concern. This comes largely from my interactions with other ministers, let me be clear. A very real concern about the current state of all-male thinking, that it is almost disinterested in this life and the future of this world. It's almost as though the only thing left for us to do is to suffer and to wait for Christ's return. And to, to, to suggest anything otherwise is to be accused of obscuring the hope of Christ's future advent. Well, let me be clear along with Ian Murray that the best hope is that of Christ's return. And this must always be the Christian's greatest hope and nothing can ever compare uh, to our hope of Christ's coming in glory. Nothing. And yet, I would say of the same man who is looking for the return of Christ, and I'm using the imagery of Christ himself in the Gospels, may this man who's looking for the return of his master, may he not in the meantime, as he's busy doing the master's work, hope to see great things in his own day. Is there anything wrong with that? Am I to be faulted when I say, I want to know what Luther knew? I want to know what Jonathan Edwards knew and... Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the things that I wonder at times as I think of this current state of affairs in the OPC is how many of my brothers have given themselves to a study of church history and of Christian biography. You see, when you read the history of the church, it is largely an account of the great awakenings through uh, the history of the church. You are reading of the great things, the mighty things God has done. And the more that you read these things, the more apt you are to become inspired and to ask the question, I wonder if perhaps God might do something similar in my own day. Let me come to a more positive exposition of the idea, key features of revival. A definition. Revival is what happens when God pours out his spirit in a mighty way, in such a way that the vast slumber that has taken hold of the church has ended. You see, that's the idea. She's been asleep, now she's awake. And that's why the word awakening, if you've studied the subject at all, is so often used. People who are asleep become awake. That's the idea. How did she become awake? She became awake because of fresh power from on high. The awakening of those who are asleep spiritually. Fresh power from heaven given to those who knew little of it. You see, they've been living in the days of small things. But something great, something mighty has happened. Think of the change that occurred in Luther's lifetime. The church in a Babylonian captivity. That, those are his words. The church set free. The church set ablaze and alive. What happened? She was revived even as she was nearly dead. Where else do we read of it? We read of it in Acts, of course, and in many other places. When men are filled with the Spirit and preach with boldness and many believe. That's the common refrain, it seems, in Acts. Let me give you the definition that you will find in this handout. This is what Alexander says revival is. He says, when many souls are coming to Christ at one time, we call it a revival of religion. He says, this is always preceded by the refreshing of the church. So he revives the wintry places of his church by bringing to light thousands of hitherto darkened souls. From Pentecost onwards, the Holy Spirit has been frequently sent in a fusion so copious as to add multitudes simultaneously to the church of such as shall be saved. He asks, is it a joy? Is this your joy, O reader, when the mighty awakening took place in the religion of Samaria? There was great joy in the city, Acts 8.8. 8. 
He asks, do you pray for revival? Revival begins in prayer, so they are maintained by prayer. If we would see many thousands converted to God, we must pray in the house of God, in the converted meeting of the brethren, in the Sunday school, in the family, in the closet. Pray, pray, pray. I'll come back to that. Let me give you Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition. He says it is an experience in the life of the church when the Holy Spirit does an unusual work. He does that work primarily amongst the members of the church. It is a reviving of the believers. You cannot revive something that has never had life. So revival, by definition, is first of all an enlivening and quickening and awakening of lethargic, sleeping, almost moribund church members. Suddenly, the power of the Spirit comes upon them, and they are brought into a new and more profound awareness of the truths that they had previously held intellectually, and perhaps at a deeper level, too. They are humbled. They are convicted of sin. They are terrified at themselves. Many of them feel that they have never been Christians, and then they come to see the great salvation of God in all its glory and to feel its power. Then, as a result of their quickening and enlivening, they begin to pray. New power comes into the preaching, and the result of this is that large numbers who were previously outside the church are converted and brought in. So the two main characteristics of revival are, first, this extraordinary enlivening of the members of the church, and second, the conversion of masses who hitherto had uh, never been, uh, have been outside in indifference and in sin. First, God revives the church, and then he brings people in. That's the idea. There's our definition. Let me talk about aspects of revival positively. What do we see? It always uh, begins, or we could say it's the result of, a renewed interest in the preaching. You can look at any revival in the whole history of the Bible and uh, the history of the church. This is always the first thing. Clear from Acts. It's clear from Romans 11 in connection with Romans chapter 10 and the history of the church. I could put it then like this. Revival produces preaching. I mean true preaching. It also brings about in the hearers a serious and a renewed interest in the preaching. People are listening to the preaching like never before. They're listening to every word as though their life depended upon it. Previously disinterested, suddenly there is this great interest in what is being preached. The kind of preaching, and we see this in Acts, the the kind of preaching, uh, and Lloyd-Jones said this as well, it's marked by power. There is a boldness, there is a power, there is an unction. The Holy Spirit is in it. He is working through the preaching, through the preacher and in the hearers. The thing that he's working primarily is faith, of course. He's persuading, he's converting. Those who hear are, are gripped, almost spellbound by the preaching. Not only that, but as we look at the kind of preaching that revival produces, we could look at what is preached. The doctrines which are preached themselves are are, uh, almost invariably the same. What are they? Well, there are three. There are others, but there are three in particular. The first, as we looked at this morning in Sunday school, is the doctrine of the new birth. Here are preachers saying to Christians who've fallen asleep, check your foundations, you must be born again. Do you know anything of the new birth? Are you a Christian indeed? That's the kind of preaching that they were doing. And that's why so many resented them. They said, you have no right to preach that in the churches. You're preaching to Christians. And yet, there they were. Have you been born again? 
do you know the power of Christianity? And through the revival, men and women were made to feel the power of Christianity. The second doctrine that you will invariably find in times of revival. So often you see these not only come to prominence, but they were long forgotten and that God brings them to prominence through revival. Number two is justification by faith alone. And you see that in the Reformation, of course. You see that in the, in, in, uh, in the early church and so on. Just as soon as the church begins to lose this doctrine, she needs to be revived. She needs new, uh, God to raise up new preachers to preach this doctrine. To make men and women see and feel that they are utterly and hopelessly lost in sin. And that their only hope of being made right with God is by his sovereign work of justifying sinners through the gospel. And that brings me to the third point, and that is the sovereignty of God in man's salvation. You say, well, one of the things that made me not so fond of revival was how many Arminian preachers there were. But if you actually study the revivals of this country, you will find that so many of the preachers were, in fact, reformed in their outlook and what they were preaching. And by the way, what the revival itself was demonstrating was the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. That salvation comes when God says so. And so let me say again, I've been saying it, but let me underline it once again. That what happens in revival is not only that these things are clearly uh, and powerfully preached. And that suddenly they become the great interest and focus of the church. You must be born again. That there is justification by grace through faith for sinners. And that God is uh, sovereign in the salvation of sinners. This becomes the stuff of preaching and of the church. Not only that, but the revival itself produces the effects of which the doctrines speak. Men are born again and they come to see it clearly. Men begin not only to hear and to, to the light of their justification, but to be assured of it. And they begin to see and to delight in, as never before, the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. And so God, when he raises up these kinds of preachers, he not only produces a great number of new converts, but he also produces Christians of a new kind. Christians who are awakened and brought into a new and heightened spiritual state. So great is their experience of grace. It is as though they were born again, again. Although the reality is that they were revived and awakened to the realities of the gospel in a way they had never experienced before. They were brought to the mountaintop. Now that is what we find in the Bible and in history. And that is what we find the sons of Korah praying for. Let me say something about revival in the Old Testament. Very briefly. There were many revivals in the Old Testament. I feel justified in speaking that way. For instance, Josiah's Reformation. What was that but a revival of religion among Israel? When God took the dead corpse of a church and he revives her and he revives his law and the scripture and the esteem of his people and his worship. And do not we find in Psalm 85, the sons of Korah praying for revival. Will uh, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. If the sons of Korah prayed for such things, are we not entitled, beloved, to do the same? 
Revival in Acts. What is Acts but the greatest revival the world has ever known? I don't know how else to describe it in terms of what I'm saying in this outpouring of the spirit, the new life breathed into the church. Uh, many, many are saved and those who are saved uh, are experience, experiencing uh, great and tremendous joy in believing. Joy inexpressible and full of glory, Peter calls it. How are we to understand the events in Acts if we are opposed to revival? That's a question I have. And I I don't know what the answer would be. Do we not find in Acts the very answer to the prayer prayed by the sons of Korah? Will you revive us again? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Oh, yes, I will. And he does so by pouring out the spirit of Pentecost. It's revival. But from Acts, and I promised an answer to this in Sunday school, a question has been asked many times. And that is, what is the relation of Pentecost to the subsequent revivals? You might say, now, in terms of the way you're describing uh, revival, I grant that Pentecost was a great revival, but I'm not sure about these other uh, so-called revivals. And the argument goes something like this. Given Pentecost's redemptive historical uniqueness, we are not entitled to expect anything like it in the subsequent history of the church. And to do so, is to do violence to its unique redemptive historical significance. I grant, says uh, the person making this case, Pentecost was a revival. But to look for revival subsequent to Pentecost is to do violence to Pentecost's unique significance in the history of redemption. What is my answer to that? Well, my answer to that is found in Sinclair Ferguson's book, as promised in Sunday School, on the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, who is very redemptive historical in his outlook, by the way. So I can think of no better person to answer the question. This is what he says. He clearly says Acts was a revival. And then he deals with this question of subsequent revivals. He says a related aspect of Pentecost is mirrored in what we often call revival. When professing believers are aroused and non-Christians are brought into the kingdom in large numbers, each with an individual sense of sin and need, but in the context of a widespread sense of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see how consistent these definitions are. He he goes on to deal with this problem. In some respects, Pentecost, Pentecost may be viewed as the inaugural revival of the New Testament epoch. I really like that. It's the inaugural. It's the first, but it's not the last, you see. Certainly the description of the conviction of sin experience, the sense of awe which was evoked, and the detailed model of what the church life ought to be point in that direction, giving various quotes from Acts chapter 2. This is what revival is. To develop further the metaphor of the flow of water, we might say that revival is the unstoppable or excuse me, the unstopping of the pent-up energies of the Spirit, breaking down the dams which have been erected against his convicting and converting ministry in the whole of communities of individuals as happened at Pentecost and in the awakenings which have followed. In these contexts, duplicating the pattern of the day of Pentecost, proclaiming uh, the proclamation of Christians appears to possess a, spe- a special access of power and so on. Thus we find two phenomena in the pattern of Acts. We are given case studies in the Spirit's activity and personal regeneration and conversion, but it is 
by the sign, uh, the signal empowering of the Spirit, first exemplified at Pentecost, that the monumental advances take place in the kingdom of Christ. The inaugural outpouring of the Spirit creates ripples throughout the world as the Spirit continues to come in power. Pentecost is the epicenter, but the earthquake gives forth further aftershocks. Those rumbles continue through the ages. Pentecost itself is not repeated, but a theology of the spirit which did not give rise to prayer for his coming in power would not be a uh, a theology of Ruach. Here are the ripples. Here are the after uh, effects, the aftershock. They are found in the subsequent revivals that we read of in Acts following Acts chapter 2, and they are found throughout the history of the world. Indeed, a proper theology, Ferguson is saying, and I am saying, a proper theology of Pentecost in its redemptive historical uniqueness actually gives rise to a view and the expectation of revival. Now that the Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost, may we not look for such things as were found in Acts in our own day. Let me continue. Revival in Romans. There are clear indications in Romans that a future revival is to occur that will rival, if not surpass, what happened in Acts. That was uh, the Puritan understanding of it as outlined in the Puritan hope and in the sermons from Romans 11. Worldwide blessing is foretold that will include both Jews and Gentiles, a fullness to be enjoyed. Speaking of many, many who are saved in contrast to the present remnant. And for my part, I don't know what to call this if not revival, akin to what happened in Acts. It's something that God's going to do. It's something he told his church he's going to do. And when he does it, it will be apparent to all, even to the whole world, that he has done it. Something, Paul says, something like life from the dead. Romans chapter 11, verse 15, the reviving of a dead corpse. Revival in history. Next point. Seeing this as a scriptural pattern, surely, and I've been saying this throughout, this is a valid category for explaining the many times God has done this in the long history of the church. Look at the church in the medieval period. She was under this, uh, the power of darkness. And then God began to shine the light again through the preaching of Martin Luther. What was that? The Reformation, but a revival of religion. Or in the first great awakening, it was a kind of life from the dead. When does it happen? Again and again, we see this. It happens when it appears that all hope is lost. It happens, in other words, when men and women are like the sons of Korah here, when the darkness is so general and so great that they really begin to pray for it. They stop taking things for granted. They begin to ask, Lord, where did you go? Why did you take the joy out of our religion? Why did you allow the darkness to prevail so much? Will you not... Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You see, in a sense, and this is another thing that the history of the church has borne out, and Scripture says this in Romans 11.32. I had much to say about that in that sermon. It happens when man least expects it. God imprisons man under sin that he might have mercy. He allows uh, unbelief and sin to run its course. He allows... uh, He allows men, uh, it would seem, almost to be given over completely to sin and his rejection of God. And and that's when it happens, when it is most needed and when it is least likely in the eyes of man. 
something which Dalimore says at the very beginning of his biography, and I've read this before, let me read it again. He says, in the decade between 1730 and 1740, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and crippled by spiritual decay. Yet it was amid such conditions, conditions remarkably similar to those of the English-speaking world today, that God arose in a mighty exercise of his power, which became the 18th century revival. But let me say this as well. And I've already said it, but I'll say it again, because this is uh, desperately important to see for those who long for its coming. It's something that God made especially Jonathan Edwards to see. And if you, you give yourself uh, to the study of his life, you will see this. And that is that the conditions which revival brings never continue. They never Again, we're like Peter. We want to build the tabernacle on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, I want you to go back down the mountain. And I want you to go on with uh, the, the, the more ordinary kind of ministry. Even, we even see this in the New Testament. Uh, what they experienced in Acts did not even continue to the end. We find Paul at the, at, at, uh, the end uh, commending Timothy and Titus to a more regular, ordinary kind of ministry. And so the power was beginning to die out. The ordinary was beginning to prevail again. You think of Paul lifted into the third heaven. It's a kind of uh, parallel to what I'm saying. God will only allow us to be elated for so long. He prefers, as Thomas Watson says, our humility to our joy. And he shows that by humbling us, even in such times of seasons of blessing. He brings us back into the valley every time. My final point is revival today. Now, nothing could be clearer to me. I don't know if you would agree, but here is my analysis. Then that the conditions that prevailed leading up to these other revivals resemble what we see today. Sin flourishing, true believers being few, and even they enjoying little blessing from heaven. At times we pray more the laments of scripture than anything else. Now that's true of me. I don't know if that's true of you. Here is the church languishing asleep nearly dead. How are Christians to pray at such times? That's my question to you. How are Christians to pray when her heart is breaking by the unbelief of the church? And I ask you, are they not? Are we Christians not entitled to pray the words of this psalm? Are we not entitled to pray, revive us again, O Lord? You've done it before. You can do it again. You're the same God. This is your work and you will do it in your own time. I know of Christians uh, in history who longed for this and saw it not in their own day. But God used their prayers to bring it to future generations. So be it. The same heaven awaits us both. But if it be your will, O Lord, be pleased to send forth your reviving mercies once again on your church. Let the winds of the Spirit sweep across this land as in days past. Bring the church to new heights and let not unbelief take hold lest you remove your lampstand from among us. Let not the light of Christianity go out in this land and in this church. Revive us again, O Lord, that we may rejoice in you. Oh, we confess in days like this, it isn't so easy. But would you make it easy? Lead us on from this valley to the mountaintop. I cannot understand why anyone who is a Christian would object to such a prayer. The prayer is scriptural. You see, I'm expounding Psalm 85, verse 6. 
And I would say that it is right for a Christian to pray like this. It is even his duty to do so. I'm saying it is the duty of the Christian in days like these to pray for revival. As we look for his coming in glory, his future advent, so let us look for his blessing upon us in this life. As we ask him to bring us in our own personal walk with him to the mountaintop. So let us pray the same for the church. Let us see Psalm 85 as a pattern of prayer for the New Testament believer. Especially now that Pentecost has come. And its aftershocks are still being felt. And so I close with three reasons that we should be interested in revival. Number one, because it's what we find in the Bible. Number two, because it's what we find all through the history of the church. And number three, and I especially attach importance to this because it's what the church needs most today. There is great need for revival today, beloved. That's the conviction of my heart. There is great need for fresh winds of the spirit to be blown upon the church and this nation. If you do not agree with that, well, I've done my best to convince you and I'll say no more. Here is my revival sermon. I've preached it. I've said it all. But let those who long and those who love revival, I say, along with J.W. Alexander, let them pray, pray, pray. Amen. And let us come to the table.